4: On Sunday, the 6th of November, the COP27 Climate Summit got underway in Egypt.
2: So it gives me great
0: pleasure to propose that the conference elect, by acclamation, His Excellency, Mr. Sami Shukri, who will serve as President of the conference at its 27th session.
4: Britain's Alok Sharma, who led the summit last year, handed the reins to Sameh Shukri, Egypt's foreign minister and the president of COP27. It followed a long night of negotiations over what exactly would feature on the conference's agenda.
0: I particularly welcome the agreement of the parties to include a new agenda item on funding arrangements to respond to loss and damage. Inclusion of this agenda reflects a sense of solidarity and empathy with the suffering of the victims of climate-induced disasters. And to this end, we all owe a debt of gratitude to activists and civil society organisations who have persistently demanded a space to discuss funding for loss and damage and thus provided the impetus needed to bring this matter forward.
4: While loss and damage funding might have been dominating headlines so far, Mr. Shukri also highlighted the importance of acting on previous pledges, such as funding to adapt to a warmer world. Could this week's meeting in Egypt finally make climate adaptation a global priority? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Last week, we kicked off our four-part series covering the COP27 summit. Over the next few weeks, we'll examine some of this year's key climate issues and ask how they'll be handled at COP27. We'll be hearing from our in-house climate experts as they report from the gathering in Sharm al-Sheikh in Egypt in today's episode how to think about climate adaptation we'll explore why it's become so urgent what's at stake and why just a few small steps can go a long long way Joining me once again are Vijay Verthiswaran, The Economist's Global Energy and Innovation Editor, and Catherine Brahek, our Environment Editor. Vijay, Catherine, great to have you back with us.
3: Lovely to be here. Great to be with you again.
4: Vijay, I know you're at COP27 already. It only opened a couple of days ago and I can hear it going on in the background in the room you're in. Um, what's the mood and atmosphere like? Give me some of your honest thoughts. Well,
1: you know, it's um, 44,000 people registered, over 100 heads of state, although the American president, Joe Biden, will only come in a few days because of the elections going on. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the British prime minister, is here. And just for fun, Boris Johnson, the former prime minister, has turned up, poking his head up in unexpected places and saying you know, rather provocative things. And so it's a bit of a show, I must say, and the logistics are not that great. Long queues to get into the venues, inadequate coffee on supply. But the actual mood is actually mixed, I would say. On the official stage, we've had a Secretary General warning of a road to climate hell and a very, very negative, even shrill warnings from other leaders on stage. But what I'm seeing and hearing on the ground is actually a lot more enthusiasm and interest in getting things done. Lots of side deals, a potential idea on on carbon trading being put forward by the American negotiator, John Kerry, working behind the scenes to get a coalition together on that. So I'm seeing sort of a behind the scenes and bottom-up efforts going forward, even when there's quite a lot of haranguing from the stage and gloom on the top.
4: Katrine. On Sunday, the actual agenda for COP27 was finalised. You know, exactly what they'll be talking about. So can you give me a rundown of what to expect?
3: The main thing to come out of the agenda approval process this time was this agreement to discuss, and this is the actual text here, matters relating to the funding arrangements responding to loss and damage associated with the adverse effects of climate change, including a focus on addressing loss and damage. Now, those words, loss and damage, are the ones that we were all looking out for in the agenda, specifically loss and damage associated with words around finance or funding. because So we talked about this last week, but loss and damage is basically the cost of coping after, say, an extreme weather event has hit. It should be noted that the president of the COP immediately followed up and said that the outcomes of the item would not involve any talk of liability or compensation. So I think really it's one of those things where there's a lot of careful wording happening but some definite positives to be taken away from the fact that there will be an official conversation about how to fund loss and damage.
4: Vijay, you're at Shamal Sheikh now. Tell me what's been catching your eye at COP27 in these early days.
1: So, the conference is skewed in such a way that the heads of state are right at the beginning. But actually, it's already clear to me that there's going to be quite a lot happening on the sidelines. There are numerous, not only side events, which are talking shops, but opportunities for people to create new alliances and so on. But announcements have been uh, ginned up and ready to come out. One of them, for example, involves a group of leading companies organized in part by America's State Department. I talked to Varun Sivaram, who is the U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry's senior advisor, and he told me about some fresh news that's just broken about something called the First Movers Coalition. Here at COP, we just launched the latest expansion of the First Movers Coalition, President Biden's flagship public-private partnership to address climate change through technology innovation. The First Movers Coalition brings the world's biggest companies together. We announced 65 today, like General Motors uh, or United Airlines or Apple, who have all made these unprecedented purchasing pledges, $12 billion worth, to bring new technologies into the market that are not yet ready for prime time. By making those pledges, by creating those early markets, we support innovators and investors who are ready to bring the next clean fuel for aviation. Or near zero carbon concrete and cement. These technologies for the hardest to abate sectors where the energy transition really has not even started. Those sectors account for a third of global emissions, and we need to address them now. So these kinds of coalitions can actually play a powerful role in galvanizing action, in creating markets where there aren't markets yet. We saw this with drugs for neglected diseases of the developing world uh, with advanced market commitments, we've seen it in other areas. And the fact that it's now coming to clean energy, I think, is actually quite important because it helps create markets and could really kickstart the development of some innovations that otherwise wouldn't have a chance.
4: Katrine, now COP27 is also meant to be checking up on things like national emissions pledges, trying to make those things more ambitious. How much of that do you think we're going to see compared to discussions about things like adaptation and other financing?
3: Uh, Yeah, so a couple things there. One on pledges. At the end of COP26 in Glasgow last year, countries were found to have effectively not delivered enough for the 1.5 or even 2 degrees Paris target. And so they made a pact at the end of the summit to come back within 12 months, that's now, with better pledges. Now, That hasn't actually happened, not in any universal kind of way. There's, I think, at the minute, just over 20 fresh climate pledges that were delivered in the last 12 months. The flip side, though, is that this COP is really more being billed as the implementation COP. And so what's needed now really is more concrete measures as to how these sometimes slightly nebulous promises to cut emissions are actually going to come to pass.
4: Vijay, how does all of what Katrin's just said chime with the expectations of the people you've been speaking to at COP so far?
1: I think that's um, absolutely right. The implementation COP, I think, is uh, the focus. But there's a second focus we haven't talked about yet, and that is it's also seen as the Africa COP, uh, which is a shorthand for the hosts, of course, and the location uh, being in Africa, but also the issues that are important to the developing world, especially sub-Saharan Africa. So I've been asking a number of people about their expectations for this COP. One answer that particularly struck a chord was from Mark Sussman. He's the boss of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.
0: My hope, which may turn into an expectation, is that this will be the COP that finally sees climate adaptation raised to a position of parity with climate mitigation as a challenge that needs to be tackled not as an either-or, but as something that is pressing right now because it is affecting literally hundreds of millions of people around the world as we speak, from floods in Pakistan to the droughts in the Horn of Africa. And to date, there has been lots and lots of talk, some limited action, but not remotely the kind of activities that we think are necessary.
1: I think on this particular stage, it's going to be much more of how we're going to make progress towards the goals and how do we get some stuff done in practical ways.
4: Vijay, Katrine, thank you both very much. We already know that working out ways to adapt to a hotter world will be high on the agenda at this year's COP. Climate adaptation is becoming even more important now that it's likely that global temperatures in the next decade or so will exceed the 1.5 degree target set in the Paris Agreement. More global warming means sea levels will rise further, putting many low-lying places at risk. It will also increase the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events.
5: We have far more hot spells now in London than we used to. And at the same time, when the rain does fall, and there's still plenty of rain, no one will be surprised to hear, it falls in much more intense bursts.
4: Ed McBride is The Economist's briefings editor, and he's just written a special report for the paper this week on climate adaptation.
5: One of the companies I looked at while I was working on the special report was Thames Water. That's the main water utility for London. And so even though London is nowhere near one of the worst affected places by climate change, for Thames Water, climate change is a a very big deal. They have to deal simultaneously with droughts and with cloudbursts. And both things have a big impact on their operations so I went and looked at one of their big water treatment plants in fact it's the biggest one in Europe and it's also the end point for what Londoners call the super sewer
4: London, the Thames is running along to the south of us over there for the tideway tunnel we've had to expand yet again
5: and, and is there you know just sort of more rain falling on London or does it fall in bigger bursts or do you see what I mean like what do you have to deal with the, the, the... Where tunnels going to help you with
4: well i mean it's basically a flow balance it's going to it intercepts it and then we then we empty the tunnel back to here over the next day two days three days i suppose uh, like a lot of people probably notice we tend to get heavier more intense rainfall i would say is what we're seeing and what we were doing so we've had rather a number of very heavy storms we've had a, rather a number of perhaps one in ten years storms we've had a couple in each year in the
5: last few years so it's not more rain overall it's just coming in more intense bursts that would
4: be my observation
5: the super sewer is basically a giant overflow drain for london's drainage system so when these cloud bursts come along once this huge tunnel is completed the drains will sort of overflow into the super sewer rather than as they do at the moment they overflow into the thames And that is very bad for the environment. London's sewage and its storm drains are are one and the same. So when the storm drains overflow, that means sewage in the Thames. The super sewer is intended to fix all of that. But it's only one bit of the sorts of things that Thames water is having to do to adapt to climate change. So Naturally, for a water treatment company, all its facilities are by rivers, by reservoirs, and so they're very prone to flooding. And when we saw this in the sewage plant that we went to, they literally needed to sort of raise the barrier between the sewage works and the Thames River, which it's right next to.
2: Right. I don't know the state
4: of the tide at the moment, but it's it's relatively low, maybe mid tide. Okay. So when we get a high tide, the high tide will go above the uh, flood point of beckton so we have this flood wall here so this is this is a flood defense this is
5: you were saying that in the next
4: in the next couple of amps the next 10 years or so this flood wall's got to be be raised because you get extreme high tide, spring tides coinciding with low pressure probably coinciding with the thames barrier being shut as well and you know if you've got that
5: spring tide Yes, it's projected with sea level rise to start coming over the flood wall.
4: Yeah, it's not an issue at the moment, but it could be in the next sort of ten, twenty years.
5: And they've gone through all their facilities like that, sort of both on the very grand scale, like the super sewer, installing new infrastructure, but also at the quite a minute scale, looking at every power substation and thinking, well, is this going to be flooded? Do I need to make this barrier taller? That's the kind of work that companies all around the world are having to do.
4: Thinking about adaptation is not limited to companies such as Thames Water, which are directly affected by the weather. Every company will need to work out how it'll operate in a hotter, wetter world.
5: One of the companies I was in touch with was Unilever, a huge consumer goods firm, lots of things like shampoo and dishwasher detergent. It's not obvious how they're impacted, but even so, they have been doing all kinds of modelling looking at different potential scenarios in terms of both how far climate change progresses but also what regulation accompanies that for different years you know 20 years in the future 30 years in the future 50 years in the future and trying to begin to plan what sort of contingencies they might need so will the supply chain be disrupted will they one of the things Unilever is doing is trying to make its shampoos quicker to rinse in case access to water isn't as taken for granted as it is now. Basically, people need to take shorter showers because water's more expensive. Will Unilever be ready? That kind of really quite detailed planning is happening across the board in big multinational companies like that.
2: Technologies for adaptation are quite different for technologies for mitigation because adaptation requires doing things we already do but doing them differently. Adeline Stewart-Watt is a Policy
4: Fellow in Adaptation and Resilience, at the London School of Economics and
2: Political Science. So, for example, we have technology to manage flood risk, but it's about changing how we manage flood risk to incorporate how climate change may worsen floods in the future. So for example, we have technologies in Africa as a part of development, they've used rainwater or fog harvesting to provide greater water security. So fog harvesting, basically they're nets that are hung up at higher altitudes that can capture water in this area. And then the moisture flows into a storage facility. So these are things that we already have existing. It's just about implementing them in in new areas that might not have water insecurity previously. But another example would be uh, drought-resilient agriculture. Some of the technologies in designing more agriculture, that is drought-resilient, we've been working on for decades. But it's about redesigning agriculture, so it's going to be even more resilient to the future climate impacts that we're facing.
4: There are plenty of challenges to implementing these kinds of adaptation projects, especially in poorer countries. The Economist's Ed McBride travelled to one of the hottest places on the planet, which is getting even hotter because of climate change.
5: Iraq is suffering very clearly, or at least the part of Iraq I went to, southern Iraq, the city of Basra and the area around, from very sharply rising temperatures, something like 2.5 degrees centigrade over the past few decades of average increase. And that's had a clear effect on agriculture in the region in particular, you can imagine. So I I went and visited a couple of date farmers and it was always a sort of hot desert spot and growing date palms is possible only because there's fresh water available. That has for millennia provided water for palm plantations like the ones I visited. But the ones in southern Iraq are in really bad shape the water in the shuttle Arab River is now very, very salty. And it's salty partly to do with things that happen upstream, but partly also because climate change has diminished the flow of water in the river. And that means that salt water from the Persian Gulf, just 40 kilometers away, at least at the point that I visited, begins to seep upstream. And so if you're a date palmer and you're watering your palms you can't use the water in the river anymore and that's what all these farmers relied on. I went during the course of my reporting to this date palm plantation, or I should say former date palm plantation. In the 1970s the trees were so thick here that you couldn't see the sun. and uh, Now All you can see are stumps and the uh, vegetation is all dry. You can hear it crunching beneath my feet. And at every step I take, the dust jumps up. And it's not just dust, in fact, it's also salt. This farmer who I visited, his name was Abu Ayman, and he used to make his entire living from this palm plantation. He also had a few fruit trees on the same land. All the palms and all the fruit trees are now dead. The only thing that gave a hint that this used to be a farm were these stumps, not even really stumps. If you can imagine a palm tree with the top lopped off, so these sort of headless trunks – of which there were hundreds just listing at odd angles under the baking sun in this otherwise completely deserted, completely dry, barren landscape. And that's his entire livelihood gone. He's obviously had to find other work since the land won't sustain him anymore. So he now works as a night watchman at a local government office. He, he couldn't find any other work and he critically he couldn't find any way to revive his farm.
4: But Ed also met another farmer in the area. Crucially, his prospects looked very different.
5: His name was Muhammad Abaid, and he is actually a cousin of Abu Ayman's and his farm is very close by to Abu Ayman's former farm. Now I'm in a new date palm plantation about two kilometres up the road from the ruined one belonging to Abu Ayman. It's completely different here. Y- you can hear bird song. It feels about 10 degrees cooler. And uh, the palms are looking healthy. Critically, it's in a slightly different location, right on the banks of the Shat al-Arab River. So whereas Abu Ayman's farm was dependent not just on water from the Shat al-Arab, but on irrigation channels that carry the water from Shat al-Arab. Mr. Obeid's farm is literally on the banks of the river, and that was a critical difference because when there's been rain upstream, you know, whenever there's a lot of water coming down through the river system, it sort of flushes out the salt. And so the water can be a bit fresher at those times. And this has made all the difference to Muhammad Abed. He can tell when the water's fresher because he can literally take a sip of the river. and, And he showed me, he bent over and, you know, scooped up a bit and said, no, you know, today it's no good for irrigation. He suffered a similar disaster to Abu Iman. All his palm trees were killed from the salty water. But having worked out what had happened, he was then able to fix things because he could tell when the water wasn't that salty. And so he planted new palms and just waited to water them until the water wasn't too salty. And of course if it went too long and and he really needed to water the trees but the water was still too salty, he knew so he could then get trucks to deliver water, obviously a bit of an expense, but a way to tide him over through those dry patches. This Abu Iman says is what the whole area used to be like, just 20, 25 years ago.
4: The two farmers epitomise the way in which people in poor countries are struggling with even low-tech versions of adaptation.
5: The only reason that Muhammad Abaid ended up better off than Abu Iman, well, there's two reasons... You know, the first is the luck that Mohammed Abed has his land right by the river. So he wasn't dependent on the irrigation canals. He wasn't dependent, in effect, on the very poorly run government of Iraq. There's been a kind of complete breakdown in government over the decades because of war and invasion and so on. So Abu Ayman was relying on that broken down government to provide clear usable irrigation water and the government didn't. Whereas Muhammad Abed can just get his water from the river. He doesn't need to rely on anyone to put the right water in the irrigation canals. But then the second thing that distinguishes them is that Muhammad Abed had a little bit of money to spend. So when his palm trees first died because of the salty water, he was able to clear the land and he could afford to buy new saplings – and plant those. And also when the water's too salty in the river and he needs to water his trees, he can afford to hire a tanker to come along and bring usable water to water the palms. It's not huge sums of money involved, but it just happens that Muhammad Abaid owns a shop in the nearby town. And so he makes a little money from his shop and he could, he could plow that money back into his palm plantation. Abu Ayman doesn't have any access to capital like that.
4: A small amount of money spent in the right places can go a long way.
2: The United Nations estimates that developing countries need about $70 billion per year to cover the cost of adaptation. And we're likely to see this increase fourfold by 2030. So that's just less than 10 years away. That's
4: Adeline Stewart-Watt again.
2: And why this might seem quite like a large amount, it's actually much less than the world spends per year on fossil fuel subsidies. What's important to remember about this cost of adaptation is that it's also an investment. And we know that for every dollar that we spend on adaptation, on average, saves about $5 in losses and damages in the future. And these savings ratios are much higher for things like early warning systems. Perhaps the most thorny question of all is who exactly should pay? There's global consensus that developed countries should help finance adaptation and help channel finance through existing multilateral development banks and the private sector. And this is part of the UN climate negotiations. So at the moment, developing countries have committed to doubling adaptation finance to $40 per year. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is that this is still only half is what's needed and that developed countries haven't delivered on their climate finance commitments for for several years now. This is a very worrying trend, especially since we know that the world is on a trajectory to hit 2.5 degrees of warming. And we're more likely to see vulnerable countries suffering the severe and irreversible impacts and they're going to need more support for adaptation. So there is an adaptation gap that we're seeing and we're going to need to look to developed countries to help fill that and the private sector if possible. It's worth saying that most adaptation projects
4: also include some additional benefits beyond guarding people against climate change. Here's Ed McBride.
5: I think one of the best ways to think about adaptation is really as kind of development work. That, yes, you are making people better able to withstand climate change, but really you're making them better able to withstand climate change because they're better off in general. And all the adaptation work especially for the poorest recipients kind of has that that double benefit effect
4: with extreme weather events increasing adapting to a changing climate is only becoming more urgent
5: there'll be famines there'll be droughts there'll be natural disasters you know at the very least the rich world will see all kinds of horrible events unfold on tv screens and governments will feel pressure to respond with aid But also, you know, the impacts on the rich world will be more than the sort of moral embarrassment of all of this. There will be effects on the the world's food supply. There will be effects on supply chains around the world. And of course, if it gets bad enough, you know, if you're a suddenly dispossessed farmer from Africa, you're not just going to sit there and starve. You're going to walk to the nearest city – then you're going to try and find some money to move on to wherever you have the prospect of a better life. And that will mean an awful lot of climate refugees. So one way or another, this is going to come back to bite the rich world. And therefore, it makes sense to invest the relatively small sums that are involved in in helping people and avoiding these terrible outcomes.
4: In theory, then, stepping up adaptation doesn't sound particularly tricky. In practice, however, financing these projects can be a hurdle. Will COP27 provide any answers? That's coming up.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
4: Today on Babbage, we're exploring how to better protect environments from the risks of a changing climate. I'm joined once again by Katrine Breik and Vijay Vertiswaran. Also with us is Ed McBride, The Economist's Briefings Editor, who you just heard reporting on adaptation in London and in southern Iraq. Ed, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. What kinds of financing mechanisms do you think could actually allow for some of this adaptation work to go ahead? Adaptation
5: is is very tricky. It's much harder to finance than emissions cuts, than mitigation. And the reason for that is that it usually doesn't involve a fixed asset or at least the element that you can call adaptation isn't about a fixed asset. You're avoiding a very bad outcome and that has a real financial benefit, right? I mean, if you did a cost-benefit analysis, it's better to take some precaution now than suffer terrible consequences later. But it's something that's very hard to monetize if you're a private investor. So the normal model if you've got sort of uncertain future problems is insurance and insurance does indeed help with adaptation and particularly with agriculture, lots giving poor farmers access to very basic insurance can help them enormously. But the problem with that model is that climate change is getting worse, as we know. And especially since we're going to bust through the 1.5-degree target, we can expect an ever-deteriorating situation as far as, well, agriculture in this case, but I mean really anything you might insure against. And therefore, that implies premiums going up and up and up. So there's a, a limited value to insurance. There's a limited value to all the other sort of uh, mechanisms that people tend to use with climate change, mitigation, green bonds, you know, catastrophe bonds, you know, all, all these things are sort of premised on a stable situation, whereas we don't unfortunately have a stable situation. And so that's a very long-winded way of saying this is one area where governments, concessional lenders, donors, charities, they're really going to need to play a big part because it's very hard to raise the private capital that will be needed to cover the cost of adaptation.
4: Katrine, at COP27 then, on the agenda, are there sort of items that will discuss financing of adaptation?
3: Yeah, so one of the big ticket items in the sort of next two weeks is what's known as the post-2025 finance goal, And that relates to the fact that between 2020 and 2025, according to a deal struck in 2009, rich countries were meant to deliver $100 billion per year in climate financing for both medication and adaptation to poor ones. Now, that hasn't materialized. They're close, but they're not close enough. But they're already talking about, okay, what next? I think what's interesting about those discussions is actually this time, instead of just saying $100 billion per year by 2020, there's some more nuanced conversations about how to split that. For instance, very high up on the agenda for a lot of countries is that that money needs to be equally split between adaptation and mitigation. So far, that hasn't materialized. Most of the money flows from rich to poor has been for mitigation. And then also a discussion of how much of it should be loans versus how much of it should be grants. Currently, most of that is coming from loans, which makes it quite hard for already heavily indebted countries to take on that kind of financing. So there's going to definitely be a lot of discussion within the former halls of COP27 as well.
4: Vijay, in the conference centre, have you been having any conversations with people about adaptation? It's early, but you know, I just wonder what the mood is there.
1: Uh, th- yes, th- this is actually one of the, the hot topics that people are buzzing about. We've already had uh, some news. In fact, uh, the Gates Foundation has just pledged $1.4 billion over the next four years into adaptation. Just to put that in perspective, I mean, that's not a whole lot when you think about the size of the energy industry or mitigation. But for the neglected corner of climate that is adaptation, that's a huge amount. I asked Mark Sussman, the boss of the foundation, who I mentioned earlier, what they hope to do with that adaptation money.
0: So there will be several. One of the largest will be into the research and development of crops. That means flood and drought resilient traits for crops, but also livestock. We work on getting greater resilience for livestock, whether it's chicken or cattle. We have, for example, dual-use poultry, which are chickens that are actually much more likely to survive drought conditions, grow more quickly, produce more eggs, and that provides both resilience and income largely for women smallholder farmers across Africa. We work in Ethiopia and Nigeria on that. And then we're also providing investments into public good tools. An example would be what we call an agricultural adaptation atlas for Africa, which is using digital soil health mapping, using satellites. This is something that wealthy farmers in, say, the Midwest and the United States use themselves already and has not been available for smallholder farmers in sub-Saharan Africa where you can analyze soil at a very high degree of focus, so it's down to hectares of land, and analyze what's going to be the optimal crop to invest in, what's the optimal use of fertilizer, what's the optimal use of irrigation. And if you can combine that to weather-predicting activities, again, basic tools that wealthy farmers often get, but in the global south can often be a matter of life and death, We are combining a number of those investments to roll out platforms, which we hope others can co-invest, can expand in other
1: countries. But it must be said, uh, there's also a track of events and people here who are working on private sector role for funding resilience and adaptation. There's some resilience funds, for-profit funds that are working with banks that might have some mandate to do a sort of mixed or hybrid investing, that is they want a return for their investors in terms of real money, but they'll also accept slightly lower returns if there's a social return that helps with adaptation, for example. So you're seeing these sorts of investors turning up at this event as well and putting on a bit of a show, trying to form new coalitions, trying to get governments to to support what they're doing.
4: Ed, final words to you on this. What would a positive outcome for adaptation be from COP27?
5: Uh, Well, uh, more money, as we've been discussing, would be great and obviously there's the money from the Gates Foundation and others which helps. But as Vijay said, you know, it's hard to imagine that the pot of money of of sort of concessionary loans or, or donations will ever be big enough to really cover all the needs and those needs are constantly growing as well. So I think for me, the optimum outcome would be a different frame of mind about how you set about financing things. So more of that sort of hybrid finance model, more of the concessionary money really focused on the element that's most important for adaptation, really beginning to think in effect of how to stretch the money, what money there is further. That's, I think, the most important
4: idea to get across. So like a mind shift change more than anything else?
5: (laughs) Well, a sort of a miser shift, right? I mean, you have to you have to find a way to get the most bang for your buck, and and given how short money is, you know, that is just
4: absolutely imperative. All right, Ed, thank you very much for all of that. But before I let you go, aside from your special report on adaptation this week, have you been reading anything else in the Economist that you've really enjoyed?
5: Well, uh, you know, since we're all focused on climate, I'm actually going to cheat. I'm going to mention two climate-related pieces in the current issue which struck me as almost two sides of the same coin. So there's a a wonderful piece in finance and economics that talks about just how bad the winter could still get in Europe. And the second piece I wanted to mention was one about energy provision in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, how half of the population of sub-Saharan Africa has no access to electricity at the moment at all. And whilst we spend all our time worrying about emissions cuts, rightly, we also have to balance that with some sense of how we're going to provide the energy that people expect or, in the case of sub-Saharan Africa, deserve. And, you know, you can't think about one problem without the other. So I I would really recommend those two pieces.
4: Now, you can read about all of that in The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory subscription rate. Ed, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Katrine, next time we talk to you on this podcast, you're going to be with Vijay in the vast halls of Sharmal Sheikh. What are you looking forward to uh, doing when you get there?
3: I actually think Vijay and I will be ships passing in the night. I think he's leaving at the end of the week just as I arrive. And uh, what am I looking forward to? Sleepless nights, apparently aided by no coffee whatsoever. Um,
4: (laughs) Maybe they'll have sorted it out by the time you get there.
3: and, And no doubt, a ton of legalese.
4: Well, look, both of you, um, good luck with it all. And we'll be talking to you both again next week when we'll explore the global energy crisis and the impact that's having on climate action. Uh, Spoiler alert, it's actually not all bad news. Vijay, Katrine, good luck. And thank you both very much for joining me.
3: Thank you, Alok. Thanks, Alok.
4: Thanks also to Adeline Stewart-Watt and The Economist's Ed McBride. And of course, thank you for listening to Babbage. Don't forget that you can read Ed's full special report on adaptation, all seven chapters of it, if you subscribe to The Economist. Listeners can get a special introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.
5: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat